looking at verses 16 through 20 of Matthew chapter 28 today. As you're turning there, I'll tell you, if you have the opportunity to, uh, to greet Betty Lithgow today, you should wish her a happy birthday. So it is her birthday today. So happy birthday, Betty. Also, just by way of reminder, and, and our message today is going to be very, very much tied to this, but immediately at the end of service, we're going to encourage everybody to stay here. We're going to open up the doors. We're going to bring up the global outreach team. We're going to bring up the Brennans as this is their final Sunday with us. Uh, I think they're like sliding down in their chairs as far as they can as I, I mention them, but we're going to put them through torture uh, you guys are loved and appreciated, and we are uh, delightfully sad to send you off to continue the work that you have, have done there, and uh, it's been an absolute joy and treasure just to have you with us and to get to know you guys and your family, and so um, it, it'll be our privilege to kind of officially send you guys back to work today uh, with, with prayer. Um, so we'll do that immediately between services. We're going to do it between services because we don't want to torture them by doing it twice. And so uh, we're trying to be a little kind here. But uh, uh, let's, uh, let me read to you Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, and then I will pray and we'll look at God's word. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Heavenly Father, as we we turn now to your word, we confess our, our need of you to, uh, to give us the mind of Christ, to, to understand that which is unknowable. As we're told in 1 Corinthians, uh, no one knows your thoughts except your spirit. But Father, we're grateful that you have freely given those of us who believe your spirit so that we might know the things that are freely given to us by you. And so we, we know that we must depend upon your spirit to see and to know and to understand things that are so contrary to us in our sin nature, a nature that we still struggle with in the flesh, having been made alive in the Spirit with Christ. So we ask for your help and your wisdom today. Lord, we pray uh, continually this month. We're continuing to pray for the Christian Aid Center. And as we pray for them this final week, Lord, we, uh, we just, again, want to praise you for the work that they're doing and the, the impact that they're having in lives. And we pray that you would grant them wisdom They've asked us to pray for wisdom, that you would uh, help them to know just how to apply your truth in, in the lives of the, the people there, that, that people would, um, would learn how to, uh, to obey you and to walk with you and to, uh, to live a life that is not only pleasing to you, but is also good for them. And so, Lord, we pray that you give the staff wisdom in leading and helping and, uh, and serving the people there, Lord, as they as they do serve the broken, and, and we pray, and we, we're all broken in different ways, where they simply serve uh, people whose brokenness is maybe a little more obvious than others. Lord, we, uh, we pray for unity among the staff, uh, especially as there's a new staff member coming on board there. Lord, would you uh, help them to be of one mind and one purpose and one heart, and, uh, and would that unity of mind and heart and joy in Christ affect the work that they do? Father, be glorified in our time today for, for not only your glory and fame in the world, but also for our good, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Excuse me, in the late to mid, I would say, 1600s, uh, there was a, um, a group of men who gathered in England to kind of determine what the theology of the church in Reformation would be. They were called the Westminster Divines, which was just an old term for uh, theologians. And it's why if, when you get a degree in church ministry, it's called a, a degree in divinity. 
But as they, as they sought to understand what the church was going to officially believe and teach uh, without being able to put Bibles in most people's hands, they utilized a thing called a catechism. And a catechism was a series of questions and answers that might be asked to help people know the truth of God. The first question that is asked in the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? For what purpose were you created? What is the purpose for which God made you and you exist? And when you go to work and when you lead your family and when you play, thank you, Thad, uh, when you do all of those things, to, to what end are you doing those things? Well, their answer was to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. John Piper came along hundreds of years later and kind of combined the two uh, answers in, in a book. If you've never read it, I would highly encourage it called Desiring God. But he made this statement, and I believe he is absolutely correct. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, what Piper is saying is that really our, our duty in life, and not only life for eternity, is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Will God be glorified in the condemnation and then damnation of sinners? To be sure, he will. But God is most glorified when people are satisfied in him. I don't know why God has chosen to be glorified in saving hell-bound sinners. I don't know why he has chosen that as the means for which to, to, to make his greatest glory seen, but he has. And so the question before all of us today is, have you thought much about your purpose in life? What, what is your purpose in life? What, what comes to mind first and foremost when I ask that question? Is it to raise a godly family, to love your wife or your husband, to serve the church, to build your career? To be certain, none of these answers are bad things. In fact, none of them are even wrong answers when they come secondarily to glorifying God. When we seek to raise godly families for the glory of God and the salvation of our children, when we love our wives for God's glory and our husbands, when we serve the church to the glory of God, when we, when we go to work every day understanding that we are representatives, ambassadors of God in that place, all of those things are wonderful things. But when, as it's so easy to do, when we forget that our purpose is to glorify God and we start living for those things, we make those things God. And they all make wonderful, wonderful gifts from God, but they all make lousy, lousy gods. One of the essential duties in glorifying God in all of these places, if the chief end of man is to glorify God, then our chief end is to also seek others to be glorifiers of God as well, to call others to enjoy him for eternity. It's interesting that we come to this passage today because as we wrap up this series today, as we've gone through this month looking at our vision and, and what God has called us, the mission he's put us on at the church to take steps together to love God and make him known and to reach 500 people or families over the next five years with the gospel, uh, it's interesting that we come to this passage because next month we're going to start back into our treatment of Matthew. It seems like we've been out of Matthew for a while. We have to go all the way back to November for that. December was, uh, was Advent, and this January we've been looking at this. But, but I'm, I'm actually really, really grateful for the opportunity because we get a sneak peek here into the very end of this story in Matthew. And if we fail to understand this passage, if, we, if, we, if I preach my way through the book of Matthew, if you've already gone through Matthew and BSF, if, if you are reading it like I am uh, this January, this, this new year, 
And we get to the point in Matthew where, where we get to the end and we don't grasp this passage, then we failed to understand the whole book of Matthew. And so we get to see this passage today and remind ourselves of the end of the story as we enter back into the, the beginning of the story and continue our way through the book of Matthew. This passage often called, is often called the Great Commission. And I think what Jesus is telling us here, really Matthew as he writes it and we get to the end of this book, is if the great commission in our life is the great omission, we have entirely failed to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what he has called us to do. We're at the final part of this four-part mission. We saw first that we take steps, that we're all in progress that we're all, <clears throat> excuse me, we're all uh, headed uh, towards maturity in Christ gradually, and that we take those steps together, and that as we take those steps here, our largest purpose here as we gather in the church is to love God. Those of us who believe in Him, who have trusted His goodness and His rule, should also love Him. And then finally, today, we're going to see that it is the mission of the church to make him known. Today, I want to consider five essential elements for, for fulfilling the church's mission. Five essential elements for fulfilling the church's mission. Now, these five elements, by the way, are not steps. It's not step one, knock on a door. Step two, introduce yourself. Step three, ask them what a Christian is. Step four, let them give you the wrong answer. And then step five, give them the right answer. That's a good method, by the way. You want to know how to get to a gospel conversation with somebody? Just ask them what a Christian is. You know, it's a person who goes to church and reads the Bible and tries to get to heaven by doing good things. Wrong. Actually, that's not my understanding of Christianity. Can I tell you what I think it means to be a Christian? Well, sure, go ahead. Or maybe no. Either way, at least you got to that point. This is not that. This is the character qualities that are needed in us all in order to reach uh, people for Christ. Now, uh, I'm going to admit that while the content of this sermon is mine from study and reading God's Word and reading commentaries, the outline is not. If you're reading somebody's book sometime or commentary or you hear a sermon on the radio and you go, Man, I've heard that outline before. I'm fully confessing I, I ripped this off, but I couldn't do better. So sometimes we borrow good things from others. In fact, if I gave you the commentaries I read, you'd learn pretty quickly I've never had an original idea in my life. But we're not really looking for original ideas. We're looking for very, very old ones. And so I'm content with that. Essential element number one for fulfilling the church's mission is availability. Availability. Look with me at, at verse 16. We're told now the 11 disciples, because Judas had hung himself at this point, went to Galilee. They were in Jerusalem in the south. They've gone to Galilee in the north to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We have no idea what mountain this is. We have no record of this prearranged meeting. We just see here that Matthew tells us that there had been a prearranged meeting at a certain place in time. This is probably around 20 to 30 days after Jesus' resurrection and, and uh, a couple of weeks before his ascension and then Pentecost. But he had made this arrangement to meet with these people. He's already appeared to the disciples. He's met them fishing and prepared breakfast. He's restored Peter. Uh, th this is not the first time that they're seeing him. And whether it was before his death not likely because they didn't seem to get much before his death. But in, one, in some encounter that he had with them afterwards, he makes this arrangement for them. He didn't, they didn't know what he was going to tell them. They didn't know what he was going to call them to. They didn't know the purpose for which he was about to put them on mission. They just knew they were supposed to meet Jesus there. 
It's unlikely, as we understand this text, that this meeting was limited to the 11. Only the 11 are mentioned, but it's most likely, from what we'll see here shortly, that there was probably more than just the 11 there. But if we only consider the 11, let's consider some of who these people were. Some of them were were fishermen. Uh, Fishermen was probably a lucrative profession, but it was not an elite profession. If you had not proven smart enough for the educational system of the day, you would do a job like this. And so we see guys like Peter and others who were fishing with their fathers or who had started their own business. And so these weren't the smartest of the smart uh, there were tax collectors. In fact, Matthew was a tax collector. These were sellouts to Rome. These were people. So uh, if, if you ever heard the term publican before, I don't know if you have or not, but this is where the term publican comes from. Within the Roman system, there were divisions called publicanes, and it, and it was tax divisions. And you could purchase a, a publicani, and, and then you could tax that, that, uh, that area. So if you purchased a a tax area in Walla Walla and you had to, let's say, provide the state with $10 million a year in revenue, uh, if you could extract $20 million from the people, well, then you could give the state their $10 million and you could keep the other ten. And so these, these taxation areas were purchased, and then the tax collectors would try and exact as much out of the people as they could, because whatever they got over the minimum tax, they got to keep. And Matthew here had sold himself out to Rome, a Jewish man working for Rome, taxing the people of Israel, dishonestly. tax collectors were not looked upon very well. And in complete contrast to that, you have Simon, who is often called the zealot, not Simon Peter, but Simon the zealot. Zealots were the exact opposite of tax collectors. They weren't sellouts to Rome. They were the ones who were trying to undermine, whether it be politically or violently, Rome in any possible way. They could. It's interesting that we read 1 Corinthians today about unity, because if then we see in Ephesians 2, if there can be unity in the church between Jew and Gentile, and if there can be unity among these 11 between a tax collector and a zealot, well, certainly Christ can create unity between us as well. But, but these are not the, the elite. They're not the most uh, anything. In fact, that we come back to our 1 Corinthians 1 passage, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. What makes this group so special? They were available. They showed up. They showed up where Jesus said and when he said. If you are incredibly talented, gifted, if, you, if, if everybody looks at you and says, it's kind of a thing that kind of drives me nuts a little bit, but people are like, Oh man, if God could just go get a hold of so-and-so, he could do so much for the kingdom, as if God isn't sovereign and can't get a hold of whoever he wants. But if you're one of those people who is just so incredibly talented and gifted, that, that people look at you and like, man, you could do so much, but you're unavailable, you're useless to the kingdom. In fact, uh, there was a saying from a, a guy I worked with years ago. He used to say he wanted, uh, he wanted people to work with him in ministry who were fat. I'm like, I got that covered. He's like, no, no, not that kind of fat. Faithful, available, and teachable. Available. Availability is an incredible uh, tool to be used by God. And we're going to see why here shortly. If you want to make a difference in this church or in this world for eternity, it will be by being available. I'm firmly convinced. I'm just going to let this marinate. You can think on it on your own. I've been thinking about it a lot, and I could probably preach a whole sermon on it. But I am thoroughly convinced that one of the greatest tools of Satan against the spread of the gospel and the discipleship of our children is busyness. It's busyness. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. God wants us to be available to be where he wants, when he wants. 
The second character quality that is necessary in order to fill the mission that God has put the church on is worship. Worship. Look with me at verses uh, 17 and 18. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is particularly why I think maybe there was more than just the 11 here, because Jesus had already appeared to the 11 in the upper room, and the only one that we're told was doubting in that place was Thomas. And and Jesus sufficiently answered all of his objections to the resurrection. And so whether this is the 500 that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians that, that saw him alive, there is seemingly much more than just the disciples here. And some of these people, when they saw him, they doubted. We're not told what their doubt is. We're not told if they doubted that Jesus could be resurrected at all. We're not told if they doubted that this was actually Jesus. We don't really know. But either way, they saw him coming to them, and some of them doubted. Verse, 19, or verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, the, the word came is in, in Greek quite literally, came up. I love this picture because they're doubting, and they're not sure who he is, and Jesus' response is to, to come up to them and say, He comes up to them and speaks to them. And whether it was seeing his physical form or whether it was hearing his voice, he didn't look at them and say, ah, the doubts of you people, I'm out of here. No, he came up to them and spoke to them. But those who did not doubt, what did they do? They worshiped him. They worshiped him. All eyes at this point on Jesus. All ears attentive to what he is saying. That's ultimately what worship is. When the focus of our lives is Jesus Christ and his glory, be it at work or play or home or church or anywhere else, that's what worship is. It is single-minded focus on Christ. And so we not only need to be available, we we need to not only show up where God wants us to, sometimes that looks like specific places that he tells us to be, And sometimes that's just waking up and saying, Lord, help me to see where and what it is you want me to do today. And looking for those opportunities. We see this all over. Uh, Throughout Acts, Paul prayed. He asked churches to pray for open doors. Lord, show me what doors you're opening today. Show me what doors you're closing today. When we're available in those moments, when we live all of those moments focused on Jesus, we're worshipers. The third quality that is required in order for us to accomplish our mission is submission. Submission. Look at what Jesus says to them. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus begins speaking to them by reminding them that he has all authority. This this is the first of several alls throughout this passage. And so if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline all. If not, just pay attention for the alls as we go along uh, here this morning. But, But the following commands that he's about to give them all uh, bear the weight of this reality that all authority has been given to him. And because all authority has been given to him, all nations are to be discipled. They are to observe all that he has commanded, and he is with us always. We'll see why that's actually the word all in a bit here. But the emphasis is on all authority. First Corinthians, we're told this as well, that all authority has been given Jesus given to Jesus by the Father. This fact might cause us to reconsider some of our ideas about the goodness of submission. I think oftentimes we think of submission as a bad thing or a lesser thing, but it's not true. Because if Jesus is submitted to the Father, as we're told in 1 Corinthians, then submission can't inherently be bad. But the first thing, or the third thing I guess we see, the third quality needed is submission. If we're available, like let's imagine you say, hey kids, let's, you're talking to your kids in your home. Okay, we're going to meet at this time and this place and we're going to go do this task. And they're thinking about that task and they're focused on that task. And you say, meet at this time and this place and they show up and you say, all right, let's go do it. And they say, 
No. It's probably not going to go over very well. Because it doesn't matter if we're available. It doesn't matter if we have our eyes set entirely on Christ. If we're busy trying to fight his rule in our life. But the reality is, he doesn't need our permission to rule. He doesn't need our permission to be in charge. He's already been given all authority. By the way, when people get saved, no one makes Jesus their Lord. They just come to understand what is already true. That he is already the Lord. That he is already in charge of all things. And so we must be available. We must give ourselves to worship, no matter what our task is, whether it's singing, which is where most of our minds run to as a church, or whether it's family devotions, or whether it's disciplining our children, or whether it's going to work every day and working hard and being a good employee and being submitted to our bosses and even our governments, Romans 13 and 1 Peter. It's all acts of worship as we are submitted to the authority of Christ. The fourth characteristic, and this is where we really see what the call of the mission of the church is, is obedience. Obedience. We've already seen that the disciples are available, that they've worshipped him, that Jesus has all authority. And then in verse 19 and through the beginning of verse 20, we get this command of Jesus. And it's a four-part command. The main command here is to make disciples, but then there are three additional verbs here that gain some of that that weight of that commandment. And so the command that he gives to these people and to you and I gathered on this mountaintop is to make disciples. We make disciples. Let's look at this text and then we'll pick it apart. Uh, Verse 19, go therefore... Because I am in charge of all things, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple is not merely a student. A disciple is not merely a a learner. Uh, The educational system of rabbi and disciples in, in Israel at this time was not interested in making people who had intellectual knowledge. The idea of being a disciple of a rabbi or of a teacher was of becoming like him. Not, not just that you knew what he knew, but that you lived like he lived and you did what he did. In fact, uh, the Most rabbis were raising up disciples not only to spread what they believed and taught, but to continue the work after they were gone. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. He says, your charge is to go make disciples. I've made disciples of you. We shared life together. I didn't only teach you, I spent time with you. I rested with you, I prayed with you, I ate with you, I lived with you. I worked with you. We we were on this mission together. That's what discipleship is. it's It's much more of a whole life kind of thing. It's pretty interesting to me when we get to this point in in this obedience conversation, when Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, the emphasis he places before giving that command is, is not on his saving ability, but on his ruling power. That you are and I am to go and to make disciples and to baptize and to teach. What is it that we're to be obedient to? Again, I've already said the main verb here is to make disciples. And how do we make disciples? Well, I think there's three parts to that. The first command, the first part of making disciples is to go, is to go. This is a, it's a participle in Greek, it's a, it's an, and we're going to get a little technical here on some of these parts because it matters. It's a, it's an ing thing, it's a, it's a continuous thing. It's, it's no less a command, 
But the command is to, to be going all the time. Some of us, like the Brennans, are going to go to the other side of the world to learn a language and to, to preach the gospel and to translate the scriptures and to call people to believe. Maybe some of you in here today are being raised up and called to that task. Don't ignore it. Don't be like Jonah. Because after all, it is the Lord who reigns. And it is the Lord who will have his way. Maybe it's to send your children to a place that doesn't seem safe. But I'm here to promise you that the safest place for your children to be is wherever the Lord wants them. Whatever it is, wherever we're called to go, we go. Whether that's go to work, or go to the grocery store and stand in a longer line, or, or, or go to the gym, or on vacation. God will open those doors, especially if we're available and looking for them and obedient and submitted to him. We go and we make disciples. Secondly, once, we've, once they've believed, once they've heard the gospel, we baptize them. I think, and I'm not going to make much of this today, we, we've had this conversation lately, but this is, uh, baptism is the official sign of plugging them into the people of God. Once they have believed, once a new disciple is made, they need a church. They need to get plugged into a local church. They need to get baptized, and, and, and baptism is the statement that the one is part of the many. I love the fact that when Mike prayed this morning, he prayed that, that we were gathered together as Trinity. We're not gathered in Trinity. We're not gathered in the house of the Lord. We are gathered as Trinity. We are gathered as the house of the Lord. It is the people of God that are the temple of the Lord, as we're told in 1 Peter. Each of us living stones being built together. We, we plug people into churches. And thirdly, we teach them to obey all that Jesus commands. Not part, not some, all. I think this is something that the church is desperately in need of. Busyness is moving us away from growth groups. Busyness is moving us away from adult Bible fellowships. Busyness is moving us away from those places where we get connected to other people and have those iron sharpens iron relationships. See, the truth of the matter is, as important as I think the gathering of the church is, as important as I think preaching of the word is, as much as I will die on the hill that it is my responsibility to preach the word of God to the people of God, it's going to take me forever to teach you guys all that God has commanded. In fact, I'm not going to live that long. We need places, adult Bible fellowships and growth groups that don't do what we can do in here we need adult Bible fellowships and growth groups that can do what we can't do in here. That can gather us around tables. That can look at God's word at a much faster speed. Where we can learn from each other how they're obeying. Maybe even where we can be vulnerable with others so that they can help us obey. Where there's accountability where we can report, how did you do on your goal this week? Okay, we're taking a, a parenting ABF and there's this thing that I need to put in practice in, in my life. And I'm going to do this one thing this week and then I'm going to come back to the ABF next week, the Adult Bible Fellowship, our Sunday school classes. And I'm going to, I'm going to say how I did. I completely and totally failed. Well, join the club. Or I made some good strides this week. And one of the things that we really can't do in this endeavor is we can't be so stratified that we've got young growth groups and old growth groups. We've got Gen X growth groups and boomer growth groups and whatever. And here's why. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse, verses 1 through 6. But as for you, now the context is important. He's speaking to a young man. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, 
dignified, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, we want to pay attention to this word likewise, it's important. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or, or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. There to teach the younger women how to live at home, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women, who are you investing in who is younger? Who are you teaching not to make the same mistakes that you made? Who are you passing wisdom along so that they might be ahead of you? When we invest in people, when we disciple people, they're going to make mistakes. But a good discipler lets them make their own mistakes and not, doesn't let them make the mistakes that they've already made. Who, who are you? If your growth group is entirely of an older generation, why are you hiding the treasure of wisdom that so many people in this church and in this world, need. What if you deposited yourselves into other growth groups where there was younger people to invest in? That doesn't mean you have to give up that one. That might be a, a wonderful source of encouragement for you. But what about plugging in in other places? where you, you can serve and pass things along. But it's not just women. Here's where the word likewise comes important. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The, the, the older men are to invest in the younger men the same way that the older women are to invest in the younger women. How can we do this if we're separated? Now, there's two tendencies that are really, really dangerous on both sides of this equation. One is from our wiser, more mature part of the congregation to say, they don't really want to spend time with me. Uh, do, do they really want to be with me? Oh, I, 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 what do I have? The world is such a different place. Listen, the world is a different place, but people have been the same since Adam. The tendency is to say, I don't have much value. Oh, don't buy into that lie. The church needs you. Young families need you. Young believers need you. You are in a place in your life not to do the least ministry you've ever done, but to do some of the best. And then there's the younger side. And I'll just share a story real quick. This is a true story from our experience. Uh, we had a pastor leave the church we were at in Tucson. He had a a growth group. It wasn't called a growth group there, but that's essentially what it was. He led a growth group, and we stepped in as leaders, and it was mostly young people. And there was, I, in fact, there was a man who I spoke of, I think it was last week. Uh, his name was Stu Wilson. He was probably about 75. He'd served the Lord faithfully for years. He and his wife, Jackie, were just delightfully encouraging and godly and wise and warm people. And I said, Stu, what do you think about coming to our growth group and just kind of being like mentor parents? And then we took, he said, I'd do that. And I went back to the growth group and I said, we want to do this. I kid you not, this was the quote. We don't want to do that. We want to figure this out on our own. If you are in this room, and you are young, and you are inclined to figure things out on your own, Somebody else next to you needs to reach over and hit you upside the back of the head. That is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Seriously. Was that a men's camp? I know I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again. It's pure gold. This old guy, like 90, was awesome. Frank was his name, and he was great. And everybody loved Frank. And Frank, we were sitting around the fire one night, and Frank said, you know what the difference between a smart man and a genius is? I had no idea, Frank. Tell us. 
A smart man learns from his mistakes. A genius learns from the mistakes of others. Uh, Frank was exactly right. Are we all going to make our own mistakes? Yes. Sometimes those are the lessons we learn the best. But you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to make the mistakes of others. If we have a, a, a parenting ABF or seminar and your kids are grown, what value would there be in, fr- from you to be there to invest in those who are still raising young children? It's not, those things aren't just for those who have children. We need older men who teach younger men. We need older women who teach younger women. And we need to be young people who aren't a bunch of fools, but who are willing to listen to the wisdom of those who have gone before us. That's what it means to make a disciple. We must be available. We must worship. We must be submitted. We must be obedient to teach and be taught. And finally, the final uh, component needed in gospel ministry is power. Is power. Look at how Jesus finishes this last statement. He doesn't send them out to go make disciples, uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that he has commanded them on their own power. No, he says, and behold, this is another imperative. Look at what I am about to say. I am with you always. Literally, always translates three words in Greek, all the days. And behold, and here's our final all. All authority belongs to Jesus. Therefore, we are to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you all the days. To the end of the age. I'm with you. I'm with you. You don't go alone. You don't work alone. You don't do scary things alone. And Jesus, in fact, what he does is he makes an incredibly emphatic statement here. If anybody here has done a deep study in the book of John, you'd be very familiar with the words ego, eimi in Greek. Eimi means am and ego means I. But Greek doesn't work like English. And you don't need to say I when you say a me. In Greek, a me means I am. And this is why Jesus is so upsetting to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law in Israel when they they ask him who he was and why he talks about Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Ego a me. Because he doesn't need to say just Ego. He doesn't need to say ego a me. He can just say a me, and that means I am. To add ego onto the front of a me is an incredibly emphatic statement. In fact, a Greek speaker would have heard this this way. I, even myself, am. It's not just that I'm with you, but that I myself am with you always to the end of the age. Why is this important? Why nitpick this particular part here? Because I think it's the most encouraging thing I've heard yet. He's with us every single day to the end of the age. And how many of you in here, as I've stood up here and talked about for the last month, the responsibility of the church to go out and tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life in our place, died a death in our place, was buried in the grave we deserve to be buried in, was raised to newness of life, and that by repenting of our sins and trusting in him as Savior and Lord, and by the way, Scripture knows no distinction of knowing Jesus as Savior and not Lord. You understand him as both or neither. But if, as I stand up here and I say, it is our responsibility to go out and to tell people that, how many of you get a little nervous? Probably most of us. Can you imagine the nerves of leaving your home country to travel halfway around the world to learn a language you don't know, to tell the gospel to people you've never met? There's got to be nerves in that. 
It makes all of us nervous. It's easy. It's easy to stand up here and, and preach the word to you guys without being nervous because you expect it. It's a whole other thing to go strike up a relationship with your neighbor or your coworker or somebody who just believes everything fundamentally different than you are. If you felt fearful in that call, you're normal. In fact, there's probably hardly anybody in this room who doesn't get a little nervous about that call. It's perfectly normal to be a little fearful. But the question is, upon whom are you relying for that task? Because if it's just, I have to go out there, I have to make conversation, I have to tell people the gospel, I have to save sinners, I have to have the right words, then that's a fearful thing. But if we go out there knowing that we don't go alone, that Jesus himself is with us, that he promised to give us the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will remind us of all the things that we are to say. If we remember that he told us not to worry about the day or the hour and what to say when we might be persecuted, because in that moment, he'll give us the words to say. If we remember all of these things, that he is with us himself, his spirit is in us, and that we go out not in our own strength or might or power, but in his, it's a game changer. It doesn't make it less fearful. But at least we can think about it rightly. I don't go out there alone. I don't have to speak to people on my own. I go with the risen, resurrected, all-powerful, everything in submission to Him, Savior, who has sent His Holy Spirit to live in me. I can go prayerfully and say, Lord, not only do I need help seeing the opportunities, I need help knowing what to say, and I need help getting over the fear of a tied tongue. Moses had all kinds of excuses as to why he should not be the one to go tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And God was able to overcome all of them. If he's able to overcome these obstacles in Moses' life and Peter's life, then he is able to overcome them in yours and mine as well. Be of great courage, church. The Lord is with you. And we're told in Acts, right after this, that he says, as he's ascending to heaven, all power has been given to you to go and make disciples. You will experience power from on high when you receive the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. Do you want a, a Christian life that feels powerful? Then disciple believers. Evangelize the lost. That's the purpose for which this power was given. And when we don't live into that, we leave that power untapped and unexperienced. Why hospitality in closing? Why is the push to be hospitable, to open up our homes? Because by God's design, it's commanded and it works. Now, I'm going to share a movie with you. and I want to admit that I have not seen the movie. It's brand new. Reviews show that there's maybe some rough spots in there just in terms of, of hard things to see. So it's not going to be your next family movie. But I think we've seen, we're gonna, we see something in the culture that speaks to why we want to, to do this. There's a movie that just came out starring Tom Hanks called Otto. And Otto is this grumpy old man who, from what the trailers look like, is a widower. Uh, reading the parent reviews, it, it seems like he tries to kill himself multiple times throughout the movie, tries to hang himself, tries to shoot himself, uh, tries to asphyxiate himself. He's angry with everybody, and he's grumpy. And this, this family moves in next door, and he's irritated. And they're just kind to him. And they invade his life. And he kind of invades theirs. 
grumpy old man that ends up babysitting a couple kids. And, and it changes him. It changes his whole perspective. It changes his whole world. Let me ask you a question. Does Hollywood produce, or at least attempt to produce, what doesn't sell? Why would a movie like this find its way into our world right now? Because over the last couple of years, people are lonely. And they're hurting. And they're sad. And they're even angry. And there is power in opening our homes and our lives and our families to the broken. It does change people. We just want to do that in Jesus' name. We want to make a difference for the glory of God and by the power of Jesus so that others, your neighbors, your coworkers, who are grumpy and sad, might become worshipers who glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why. That's the mission. That's the mission. Lord, you have set us on this mission. That it would not only be us who glorify you and enjoy you forever, but that there would be uh, an ever-increasing chorus of those who glorify you and sing your praise and share your gospel. That there might be a, a growing joy and delight in you. Lord, we're fearful. We're weak. We're scared. But you are with us. Aid us in living by that truth and in that knowledge that you are with us now and to the end of the age every single day. And let us go out and, and be on mission for your glory and for the salvation of the lost. And we ask it in Jesus' name.